We had been telling people it had been done. There was a little bit of a fib that went on. So 20 years ago, we said we met the whole human genome, but we only met 92% of it. And everybody was like, yeah, the last 8% is really hard. So we'll just say we've done it. We had been working on the human genome for 20 years. And then in about the span of a year or so, um, we were able to resolve almost all the, the sequence that was previously missing. It's been an intense desire to finish it. I think this will fundamentally change how we do genomics moving forward. So yeah, I think this will be a real tour de force and will really impact how we change uh, medicine in the future and how we can detect and treat diseases. I'm Alexia Russell and today on The Detail, we're talking about filling in the missing 8% of a puzzle that's taken decades, thousands of scientists and billions of dollars to solve, sequencing the full human genome the roughly 3 billion base pairs of DNA that make up the entire set of chromosomes of the human organism. The blueprint of us, basically. It's been a long odyssey, and it's sort of like, like you know, Homer's odyssey finally arriving home at the end of it, and it's kind of almost a bit of an anticlimax to finally finish the genome. Uh, and it's going to take a few years until we really understand its impact, because it takes years of research to understand what that last 8% means. This is Professor Chris Print from the Department of Molecular Medicine and Pathology at the University of Auckland. He's just won a career award for genomic research. He'll tell us why solving the last piece of the puzzle is really exciting and how it turned out to be far more important than many scientists thought it would be. We're also going to look at what's happening in Aotearoa to map our unique variants. But first, let's wind it back to basics. Here's Australian genetics professor Edwin Kirk with a good primer on the Human Genome Project. A genome is the set of genetic instructions that go to make up an organism. And we've all got one, whether you're a fruit fly or a television presenter or a blue whale or a pine tree. And it's the blueprint for life. Our genome has about 3 billion bits of DNA in it. So those individual letters, if you like, the individual building blocks, chemical building blocks that have got the C-A-G-T initials. And the Human Genome Project that was announced as finished, at least to a draft level, in 2000 had about 150,000 gaps in it. And the reason for that had to do with the way that the work was being done, which was all about patching together little tiny bits of information, a bit like putting together a jigsaw puzzle, and you needed the edge of one piece to work out where the next piece would go. Uh, but there are some types of DNA where there's a lot of repetition where it's quite hard to do that piecing together. A bit like a jigsaw puzzle that's got a whole lot of blue sky in it and it can be quite hard to be sure where the next piece is supposed to go. And so uh, 150,000 sounds like an awful lot and it is, but a lot of that was in places where probably the more important bits, at least as we understood at the time, uh, were not located. And within a few years they'd got it down to a few hundred, but some of those gaps were quite big. So this research is about filling in those gaps. And there have been some really quite remarkable discoveries made as part of that work. Nanotechnologist Dr Michelle Dickinson told Newstalk ZB listeners why it took so long. Oh, we just didn't have the computer technology at the time. If you think of how long um, the DNA code is and all the computer processing power and also we did the easy bits, we did the nice easy pairs. If you think about the nucleotides, the ATGC pairs, 
they're really easy. And then there is it's like this bit in the middle that's sort of a bit free floating, was quite hard to analyze. And there's millions and millions of data points. And everyone just went, oh, no, we don't have the computer power for that. So we'll just leave it. And so luckily, technology has advanced. COVID's been really good at helping increase what we know about um, genomics and genome sequencing and yeah, a whole group of people got together and said, we should probably finish this. And they finally did. And Professor Chris Prince says the last bit of this map of each of us has turned out to be more important than we thought. All sorts of really interesting things. So there's actually whole parts of about five chromosomes that we never really knew quite how they fit. And these are specific chromosomes called acrocentric chromosomes. There's also lots of areas in the middle of chromosomes called centromeres and areas around the end called telomeres. There's all of the apparatus that turns DNA into protein that we were really missing the genes that encoded uh, particular things called ribosomal RNAs. And while we knew a little bit about them, we didn't really know how they were arranged in the genome. And when we start to look really carefully by taking human genomes that we've already analysed, we're finding that we've made lots of mistakes previously without knowing about this last 8%. So does this, in in practical terms, and I guess we're speaking into your speciality now, are we talking about the ability to find more precise ways of um, treating cancer and things like that? Yeah, yeah, look, I, I, I think we are. I think the initial genome sequencing back in the 2000s was a lightest step forward. This this is, you know, further steps forward. To be honest, where we're really still being held back a little bit is our basic knowledge and understanding. We still need to do a lot more research. Every variation in genetics we need to understand, and we're still a long way from that. But what we can do now, obviously, is identify how mutations may drive a tumour in order to better diagnose a cancer. Um, Oncologists are starting now to be able to use precision medicine where rather than identifying a type of tumour like a colon cancer or a lung cancer, instead looking at what are the mutations that that tumour carries to better identify what drugs may be most useful. Being able to do this whole genome sequence opens the door once the technology gets a bit faster and cheaper for us all to have our own genetic code. So hopefully, 10, 15 years from now, you'll have your own genome sequence of yourself and you'll be able to go to your doctors and they'll be able to do this thing which we call personalised medicine, where they'll look at your code and go, right, I know exactly what you're made up of and what your sequence is, and I can figure out what bit is wrong with you, and we can prescribe you exactly what you need to cure your cancer or rid you of this plague. And even now, my my group and some of our collaborators are sequencing the blood from patients to identify how mutations are evolving in tumours to get resistant to therapy, and by sequencing bits of cancer DNA in the blood, trying to identify what the next drug would be to try and play chess with the tumour. So do you imagine that one day we will all have our own fully sequenced DNA map and a doctor could look at it and think, okay, well, in your case, this treatment's not going to work or we should try this for you. Is that where we're heading? I I, I think so. I don't think that genomics is going to be everything, of course. And, you know, there's still a lot in medicine that 
doesn't need genomics. I've had my DNA sequenced and it has transformed me in a way and that's identified a particular vulnerability I have to blood clots and meant that I wear those silly white stockings when I fly on planes and eat aspirin and things. And that's probably going to give me a few extra years of life, to be honest. And there's, there's then the idea that some people have that everyone's DNA is sequenced at birth and held very safely. And there's obviously lots of ethical and complex issues around that. But as this becomes cheaper and cheaper, it becomes a, a viable thing to use more and more in medicine. I, I guess the uh, one of the real challenges we have, though, is that um, we are missing diversity at present. Most of our DNA sequence information is on um, European ethnicity, and there's a lot of projects underway and present in New Zealand to really expand our knowledge led by Māori and Pacific people of Māori and Pacific genomes so we can make the research and the precision medicine work for everyone. And when you when you look further into Māori and Pacific genomes, will it be a case of looking at the kind of the master map and saying, well, actually we've made more mistakes or we needed to expand this? Yeah, and it's really around the world. I think there's around a million people that have had a, you know, some kind of DNA sequencing. We're starting to understand the range of different um, DNA sequences around the world. But you imagine a clinical situation where you see a mutation in someone's genome, but you don't know whether actually that mutation is just normal for that person or 20% of people like that person may have that mutation. So until we really expand the amount of sequencing we have, we may well be serving populations that don't have a lot of DNA sequence very poorly. But to do this really well, it's really a matter of having leadership from the people who are being sequenced, of course. So what's happening in New Zealand in this regard? I think New Zealand's actually leading the world in the whole indigenous genomics area. We've got people in the University of Otago in particular who are leading a New Zealand very own project. And what that means is understanding the variation in the whole genomes of individuals, especially focusing on Māori and Pacific people in New Zealand. We've got a large project that I'm involved in called Harake Ora, which is a project led with Māori to try and develop a national scale um, system for managing genomic data, which is safe, but also very easy for researchers to use, where we can put hundreds and hundreds of genome information from people, but people can keep control of their own genomes or their whanau's genomes, and there's co-governance with Māori. And the data never leaves. It's all analysed and used in one big, what we call a walled garden computer. Because this would be a, a big concern all around the world, wouldn't it, with the number of Indigenous peoples who safeguard the, the Māori of their being, you know, that the, their spiritual being is very important and that's linked to your physical being. I mean, the, are there barriers, sci, you know, scientifically when they run up against cultural beliefs? I, I, I guess I, as a Pākehā, have spent a lot of years slowly learning about this and what I'm now realising is that they're not barriers, they're enablers. And, uh, for example, in this Rake Ora project to build this national system, um, the incorporation of Mataranga Māori science, you know, science from Māori ancestors and that rich understanding with Western science is what it's all about. And that's synergising and developing a lot 
better system than we would ever have developed a few years ago if we hadn't done it in that way. And I think the only viable way forward um, in New Zealand is to be deliberately respecting Tetiriti rights and deliberately addressing Māori and Pacific health needs with the sort of project that shares leadership. So to get the buy-in from the beginning? Not just the buy-in, to get the value from the beginning. Um, You know, if you're trying to really understand the the best ethics, the best cross-generational reasoning, how to do this so it is really going to maximise benefit not just for us, but in a hundred years' time. That's the sort of thinking that some of my Māori colleagues are teaching me. And is this sort of thinking translating overseas? Like, have you got any sort of international interest in what is happening here? Yes, but this this is really the um, sort of question that some of our Māori leaders in the project would answer much better than me, like uh, Professor Phil Wilcox in Otago. Yeah, we're collaborating with a number of Indigenous researchers in Australia, United States and Canada. And we have a particular set of ethical frameworks which come from our communities, our Indigenous communities. We all try to wrap the science within those ethical frameworks to ensure that the science is actually appropriately applied um, and that we get benefits back to our communities from that. Associate Professor Phil Wilcox is the co-lead researcher for the Aotearoa New Zealand Genomic Variome, which aims to gather and analyse the genomic differences in our unique population. We uh, are trying to obtain a full picture of DNA sequence variation within our extent to our Māori. Um, so that's Māori of today, Māori communities today. Um, and we're doing it for health reasons, to provide a underpinning resource to develop diagnostics that are targeted for Māori populations. Um, and examples, you know, where there are a number of single, so-called single gene disorders or illnesses that impact a fraction of whānau out there. And right now, there's no uh, underpinning data sets that have been de- derived from Te Ao Māori. They are generally derived from either European populations or from, or increasingly from Chinese, particularly Han Chinese populations. But they have limited applicability uh, to Māori populations as well as Pacific populations in this country. So what we're trying to do is develop this uh, data resource, um, and, and it's not actually a DNA sequence as such, it's the variation in DNA sequence and attributes around that variation, such as how frequent a particular gene variant is. So that's how how frequent something that might impact someone's health is. And so that gives us a picture of, um, of, I guess, both resilience and and vulnerabilities to various conditions in in health. So now that we've cracked the 100% sequencing, does this speed up your research? I think we need to be clear on what that 100% is. That particular 100% is a genome of one person, but there's another 5 billion or so other people in this planet, possibly more. So it does to a certain extent, um, but it's more the technologies that have been used to reveal that full genome sequence of a 
single person um, and the lessons from that that can be applied in various other places around the world where there are ethnicities uh, and groups that have not been well represented in the various genome sequencing efforts to date. Everywhere is rather different, but if you look, for example, at Genome Canada, one of the big Canadian genomic um, structures, they have now prioritised working with Indigenous First Nation people in Canada, similarly in Australia, similarly with um, Genomics England that have what they call a diversity project where they're saying we're really not going to succeed in this precision medicine odyssey until we have co-leadership with people who don't have so much sequencing of their genomes. Now the work that was reported last week uses an ethical framework that applies to, um, I, I, I guess, the, the, the genetics profession, the science profession, and to sort of so-called mainstream society at large, which tends to be dominated by people of European descent. Mm. Whereas the frameworks that we use, we being this set of various uh, Indigenous researchers who are also geneticists and genomicists, um, we use the frameworks that are informed by our, our respective communities and cultures. So you're talking about things like recognising that data is also someone that, you know, that it's all tied up together in sort of the care and Correct. using that information, right? Correct. What, what are the consequences of not doing this from the get-go? We're talking about personalised medicine here and being able to sort of, you know, say, okay, that's your personalised genomic sequence. What are the consequences of, of not doing this work early? There's two sets of consequences. One is that it widens health inequities. So if there's not resources, um, information and resources that are available for underrepresented groups, then they will be less well served um, when it comes to applications like precision medicine. And then if it's not done properly, like by, by that I mean if it's not done according to the ethical frameworks of those communities, if their ethical frameworks are not paramount, then what we will see is just a rep repetition of some of the very negative experiences that some communities have had, including, you know, in this country, we had the warrior gene furore. The warrior gene controversy erupted when a geneticist claimed a gene linked to violent and aggressive behaviour existed in Maori men. The result of overestimating research results from a tiny sample, lack of scientific culture and poor communication with the media. It ran along the lines of claiming there's a crime gene or a poverty gene or a gay gene. And that unraveled on 2006 and created quite a lot of negative commentary, both about gene technologies as well as gene technologists. There are a lot of examples in New Zealand, such as the Moria gene fiasco, which many people have read about, which, while devastating in the worst possible scientific practice, taught us a great deal, I think, about ourselves. And I hope is teaching us how to avoid anything like this in the future. And I think the main thing it's taught us is collaboration and partnership and true co-innovation and co-leadership with Māori. Um, and that's taken quite a long time to get to get through. So we have challenges um, associated with not doing it at all, um, but we've also got challenges of associated with doing it, um, especially when it's not done appropriately. And I suppose, you know, we could look at a, a parallel here to vaccinations where if you don't get buy-in from a community then you don't get the result absolutely 
Absolutely. You know, I've, I've spoken to Māori communities for um, in regard to gene technologies now for almost 20 years. Um, I've got a publication track record and a research track record in that space. Um, the distrust, the, vac the vaccine hesitancy and the distrust was entirely predictable um, based upon those, um, you know, those 20 years worth of, of conversations with our communities. And I also, you know, represented my own iwi for a while as well in the space um, regarding um, gene technology. So, you know, it's just a ne another negative colonisation experience, unfortunately. Um, so hopefully our government has, has learnt from that uh, and has taken notice of the significant efforts that Māori health providers have undertaken to ensure that this vaccine hesitancy um, and the distrust has been has, has essentially been addressed effectively. Um, and, and, and it's the same principle um, in, in terms of the research I'm involved in um, in the genomic space, as well as what the Māori health providers have 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 have, have implemented, and that is Māori designed um, bespoke approaches um, develop, uh, developed by Māori. Wilcox believes the pathway to precision medicine will be staged as the predictive power of having DNA information becomes enough to justify a particular treatment. We've already seen that with the Bay of Plenty East Coast now that has a faulty gene that will overwhelmingly lead to stomach cancer. Groundbreaking research found the mutation responsible. A blood test will reveal if you have the gene. Early intervention is now possible in those cases. Singer Stan Walker, who's had his stomach removed, is a member of that family. Another example may be the gene variant that makes someone susceptible to gout or type 2 diabetes or makes them resistant to treatment. We'll, we'll reduce, hopefully remove this blame storming that goes on and replace it with better understanding um, and move people into a, into a space that's you know, emotionally more fulfilling. You know, we've got a better we've got an understanding about the genome. It's not our fault that we have these conditions. Um, but there are things that we can hopefully do to ameliorate the impact of those conditions before they arrive. I mean, in our lifetime, um, DNA sequencing will become a routine um, diagnostic tool. You know, right now when a child is born, they have their, you know, there was, there's a heel prick done, it's, the blood is blotted onto a Guthrie card, um, and that card is sent away and analysed for uh, you know, some, I'm not sure exactly the number of conditions, but it's between somewhere between 40 and 100 metabolic conditions. Well, DNA sequencing will probably replace that. Um, you know the Guthrie card technologies, as I understand it, are a few tens to a few to high high tens of dollars. Right now, it's approximately fifteen hundred dollars to sequence a genome. But there's information on five thousand conditions and housed in a genome, as opposed to the Guthrie card that has information of, like I said before, a few tens of conditions. So, you know, this is around the corner. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every weekday on any podcast platform. Adrian Holley engineered this episode. Sarah Robson produced it. And thanks to Professor Chris Print and Associate Professor Phil Wilcox. Mate wa. Well.